This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. In today's rapidly changing culture, ancient liturgical tradition is not only biblical, it's essential. In Crisis of Confidence, Carl Truman analyzes how creeds and confessions can help the Christian church navigate modern concerns, particularly around the fraught issue of identity. He contends that statements of faith promote humility, moral structure, and a godly view of personhood, helping believers maintain a strong foundation amid a culture in crisis. Pick up a copy of Crisis of Confidence wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. Welcome to the Gospel Coalition Podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. On today's episode, you'll hear a discussion between Philip Holmes, Walter Strickland, and Carl Ellis on Free at Last, the Gospel in African American Experience 25 Years Later. This panel was originally held at TGC's 2021 National Conference. All right, so let's set the stage for this conversation. Um, in Dr. Ellis's book, uh, Free at Last, he said this. He says, a survey of African American history reveals that like the children of Israel, we have had a 400-year collective trauma from which we have yet to fully recover. And like the children of Israel, we have sojourned in a philosophical wilderness as our thinking has developed. There's another quote that I wanna read because I think it's gonna put this particular talk or this particular panel in context. Uh, It's by um, a Christian counselor by the name of Diane Lindbergh. She says this, we have participated in the rejection and the contempt of others based on race. The dignity, humanity, and value of one created in the image of God had to be denied or minimized in order for slavery to survive for more than two centuries in America. Get this. It does not take much thought to realize that damage was also done to slaveholders and to those silently complicit as well. So what we're going to do here in this, in this particular panel is we're going to take the framework and the questions that Dr. Ellis asked about the African-American experience, and we're going to apply some of those questions to the broader church. How does that sound, guys? All right, Dr. Bradley. Dr. Bradley. Oh, uh, yeah, we all, yeah, we all look alike. Yeah. <laughs> we were just up here gossiping about that. All right, so... <laughs> Dr. Ellis said, we can learn something from what God taught the Israelites. 
First, through Moses, God restored, the, restored to Israel a correct view of their history. Many of God's dealings with the, with the family of Abraham had likely been forgotten or distorted in the 400-year ordeal of Egyptian slavery. African-Americans, too, need to get back in touch with their history. But how? What is the meaning of African-American history? History can never account for all of the events of the past. It is instead an account of the events that have, have sifted and evaluated, or shifted and evaluated, um, to determine their significance. History might be called a collection of significant events, but what makes an event significant? To some extent, an event is significant if it changed the course of history. So, Dr. Ellis, I want to ask you this, based on that quote. Why is knowing our history important, and how can we understand what it is, what is and what is not significant in our past? Okay, history, our history is a part of who we are. I used to wonder why the Bible uh, would introduce, they say, and so-and-so came along who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so, who was the son of so-and-so. Sometimes the Bible gives us a person's genealogy. I never really made, paid much attention to that until one day I went to my family reunion uh, and, uh, and I, found, I found that I could trace my, my genealogy back eight generations. But after that, it all gets... It all gets blown away. Anybody African-American understands what, what I mean by that. But the fact that I can go back eight generations, I was a son of so-and-so, grandson of so-and-so, great-grandson, and all of a sudden it, I, I began to realize, this is me, this is who I am. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is that when we talk about who we are, uh, there are two aspects. There's the proposition about who we are, you know, I am this, I teach there, I do this, I do that. But then there's also the narrative. This is where I come from. So when we come to understand things, we have to look at the, the, the propositions and the narratives. And I think too many of us in the Western world have neglected the narratives and we just look at the propositions. So it's good to understand where we came from. And of course, the, the African-American experience is tied up in the whole biblical narrative anyway. The biblical narrative gives us the wisdom to understand the African-American experience in terms of the narrative, okay? And if we, if, we don't, if we don't use the biblical narrative as the basis by which we evaluate our own narrative, then we're off track. Just like if we don't use the biblical propositions to, 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 to evaluate what we believe, then we're off track. So we have to be scriptural either way. That's helpful. Now, I want to follow up on that a little bit because I want to talk about, I want to broaden that a bit. You, you just addressed the African-American history uh, Walter, Dr. Ellis, even if you want to chime in again, uh, let's talk about why is it important for the American church to understand its history? Uh, yeah, which is, which is so important because uh, oftentimes if you read the history books, you aren't getting a full telling of the history. Uh, so oftentimes if you uh, read the books, it's written um, because it's, it's, it's basically written in somebody's own image. It's, uh, we, we do many things self-interestedly. And so even with, you know, the telling of a history, so, you know, we, we've been in preaching classes, the, you know, Ameri the history of American preaching. And we talk about Billy Sunday, we talk about Billy Graham, we talk about Jonathan Edwards, and so on and so forth, who should all be in that conversation. But then we forget John Jasper, but then we forget Absalom Jones, but then we forget, you know, and, and the list goes on of faithful uh, preachers that are not listed. And it seems as if, because, you know, people of that, uh, particular hue are not seen as spiritual authorities. They're not included in the telling of our history. So 
for, for some folks who might be listening, it might seem like, oh, so what we're, what we're going to do is try to like, you know, uh, eliminate these voices from the telling of history and sort of add these sort of in their place. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to have a more robust telling of the story, a, a fuller telling of history. And then that is a better picture of what God has done in the history of the church than simply seeing it through the lens of one. And so and what I think is going on there, as we have a robust telling of the history, we're actually going to see iron sharpening iron. In the sense that there are certain emphases of the faith that were uh, necessary for a certain people to engage. Uh, and then others had other emphases that were particularly pertinent for their experience, and then to, but together it's a more robust sort of lived out faith. And so, you know, just for example, if we look at uh, the, the, the idea of deliverance in the African-American Christian experience, uh, deliverance was a very important theme. You know, Exodus as a, as a biblical motif was a very important theme applied to the contemporary moment because the God then is the same God now. Therefore, you know, that's a, a very important par- a portion of what God is doing in the church at large, but if you're, not, if you're not looking more broadly at what God is doing in the church at large, you'll miss that God is working in that similar way, even you know, uh, in, in our own American history. And so that's, that's a little bit scattered, but at the same time, there you go. No, that's helpful. Great. All right. Dr. Ellis, you talk about a distorted Christianity uh, in your book. You say, black thinkers showed us that when people grow up in a particular cultural context, they fail to see the cultural biases they have inherited. They think their own value system as neutral. They think of their own value system as neutral, the standard for all people. But black leaders of the 60s showed us the folly in this. They pointed out that white American systems of values proclaimed that black was not beautiful, that the system perpetuated the daily degradation Degradation. Degradation. Thank you, Dr. Ellis. Of African Americans. The system was not neutral when it came to us. The black militants rejected American culture and its bias toward everything. Everything white. Along with white American culture, they rejected Christianity. To them, Christianity was the white man's religion. And biblical and the biblical worldview was the white worldview. So you call this in your book white. Christianity, Christianityism. There we go. What what is that? Okay. Uh, what what's white Christianityism? Well, let's let me say what Christianityism. Well, let me say before I say that, let's say what Christianity is. Okay, are you with me on that? Christianity is an accurate application of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a particular cultural context. Y'all with me on that? Okay. Christianityism is uh, consists of of false beliefs, false doctrine and whatnot, uh, or the, the heresies of a culture expressed in the language of Christianity. You got it? So it sounds like they say Jesus and all that, but they don't, they don't mean that, okay? And all of us, you know, can we talk? All of us have a tendency to drift from Christianity to Christianityism, just like Israel Israel, you look at Israel. Israel was supposed to be an international body of people who are covenant keepers. But Israel slipped into being a Hebrew holy huddle. And, and God had to deal with them on that. You know, God brings forth the church. Here's an international uh, group of people. What's happened? We made the church Western. Okay, So, so, so not only is Christianity-ism uh, 
pagan beliefs, wrong beliefs expressed in the language of Christianity, but it goes even further than that. Christianity-ism has as its God an idol. Okay, so we talk about white Christianity-ism. It is a Christianity-ism who, who, who has a white idol as its God. No, 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 no. Let me say, white folks aren't the only ones who slip, slip into idolatry. Everybody, everybody does. We all have it a tendency. It's like I, I shared with some brothers just a couple of minutes ago. Everybody else who speaks English speaks with an accent, except me. <laughs> and, and I remember the first time I went to South Africa, and I began to speak, and I found out that I had an accent. I said, "Oh, well, yeah. okay." Um, Okay, then I, okay, I got an accent. So the, the problem is, it goes all the way back to the fact that we as human beings, all the way back to the garden, when we attempted human supremacy over God. That's what the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. Who is going to decide what is good and evil? Is it going to be the word of God? Do we judge it on that basis or we do, do, we, do we judge it on our own opinion? And so, of course, you know what we did. We judge it on our own opinion. You know, you do this all the time. Every moment of every day, we reenact the original sin. You know, we decide, oh, this is wrong, but I'm going to make it right because I, I decided it is right. Okay, so what happens is that we, we become human-centric or creature-centric. And therefore, everything that comes out of us, we become the standard of judgment for everybody else. And uh, that's the paganism. That's, that's the problem that we have to this very day. And everybody does it. Now, people with more power are able to affect more people with their, with their uh, 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 creature centrism. So in, 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 whoever has the most power in a particular society in, in America, it happens to be whites who have more power, then yes, you, you have white supremacy. But in a society where most people were Asian, you're going you're gonna to end up with, uh, you know, where the Asians have the most power, you're going to have Asian supremacy. And you're going to have all that because we all have a tendency to go back to that very same thing. So Christianity then becomes the servant of the, 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 the creature-centric uh, notions of a particular group of people. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Dr. Ellis, you mentioned the word white supremacy I'm kind of going off script here, but that word is used quite often. How would either of you define the word white supremacy? How would you define it? It's just creature, creature supremacy ex- expressed by white folks. That's all. Uh-huh. And black supremacy would be creature supremacy expressed by black folks. You know what I'm saying? You've got, in some, in, if you go to Africa, you know, you, you find the people there are complaining not against white folks, but 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 against the, the dominant tribe. It's that tribal supremacy. You know what I'm saying? It's the it's it's a tendency that we all have when we have power, and we are sinners. Sin plus power, you know, equals that kind of it, it equals oppression. It also it comes out in uh, in the fact that we see ourselves as a standard of judgment or ours. It's called I I have another term. I call it usism. Us is the standard of uh, judgment for everybody else, no matter how you define that us. Okay. That's interesting. So I, I was reading an um, article at, on the Christian Post the other day, um, and I, I, I thought it was quite fascinating uh, what the um, op-ed was admitting, uh, what it acknowledged. 
it essentially said that there was an assault on white America. How many of you guys like saw that article in the Christian Post? Raise your hand. All right. And then she goes on to say, she said, I use the word white America sort of ironically because there are people from all nations, tongues, and tribes who share the values of Christianity and tradition and, and American values and so on and so forth. So what it seemed to me is that she was pointing out, and I, and I agree with her, is that when we talk about whiteness, perhaps we're talking about a culture, not necessarily the color of someone's skin. What would, you, what would you guys say to that? Yeah, yeah, it is a culture. Um, you know, when Anglo-Saxons almost made up the entire European-American population, when the Irish came, they wouldn't, they wouldn't say, you know, get, get rid of those people, get rid of those people. They weren't, but eventually the Irish figured out, they, if they can get rid of the O's and the Max in front of the name, lose their accent, eventually they would blend in. And so the Anglo-Saxons and the Irish became white. Then the Italians came, same thing. Get them out here, get them out here. The Italians figured out how to assimilate and they became white. So it's like whiteness became a, a standard. Now, when African Americans tried that, it didn't work too well because we had this, we had this, this visibility problem, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it's a culture. It is a culture and um, it's a culture based on a perception. Uh, if, if you go back, the very first time in the American colonies, the very first time the term white was applied to a person of a particular race was in 1671. This is a long time after, you know, Americans, you know, Europeans started arriving here. And, of course, that was due to some, some, some events that happened in Virginia that, that gave rise to American slavery. You know, American slavery didn't start off, in a, you know, in America, okay? I mean, it didn't. When America first, when the colonies first came, they, they didn't have slavery like we think of it, you know, in the 19th century. So, yeah, it is a culture, and we have to recognize that culture plays a much bigger role in things that go on even today than does race. I, I would say today, yes, there's racism. So, who, 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 where isn't there racism, right? But I think I think today's uh, crisis is more of a cultural clash than it is a racial clash. If you come inside the black community, you come inside the black community, and anybody would, would know this, there's a civil cold war going on between two groups. One group I call the achievers, and the other group I call the non-achievers. Now, when I say achievers and non-achievers, I'm talking about a value system. If you live by achiever values, you will succeed in the society, even though, even though things aren't all equal. If you live by non-achiever values, chances are you won't succeed. Okay, now there are exceptions, okay? But there's a cold civil war within the African-American community going on between these two groups. And they have all kinds of crazy manifestations. Now, people from the outside may not recognize that. But if you get into the white community, you see the same thing. It's, it has a slightly different manifestation. So, but that's a cultural clash. It's a cultural clash. I heard somebody... An African-American the other day saying, <clears throat> they tried to do some Section 8 housing in my neighborhood, and I fought it. I'm not going to have those people live here. This is one African-American talking about other African-Americans. What? If the person said that was white, we'd charge it with racism, wouldn't we? But again, it's that, it's that conflict going on. There's a, there's a cultural conflict going on, and I think that explains more of what we are seeing today in, in this country than, than, than race. I mean, look, if, if America was... Okay, yes, yes, we have racism in this country, okay? We even have systemic racism. Yes, 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 yes. 
But if it was all that bad, as people said, then I still can't figure out how Obama got elected twice. And it wasn't black folks who put him in, in uh, put him over the top. It was it was those folks, those white folks out in Iowa. Okay, you, you understand what I'm saying? So yes, there is racism and all the rest of that. But I think I think we if we focus on that and not also include the cultural clash, then we end up straining out the net while swallowing the camel. I hope that makes sense to you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Walter, you ready? Yeah. It's about turn. to throw one at you. Um, is it possible if we consider that whiteness is a culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when we talk about white supremacy, we're talking about the supremacy of a culture, at least for our purposes. I think that's a more helpful way. Mm-hmm. Um, is it possible for a black person to be a white supremacist? Mm-hmm. And if so, why? <laughs> Thank you. I love you. You know, uh, I, I love you, brother. I, hey, he so, won't put more on you than you can bear. <laughs> yeah, so we tested it. Holy Spirit, help. Yeah, now you know why I spoke early. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get the follow-up stuff that just came to your mind. Well, I mean, if we do understand this as a cultural reality, then I think, yes, it's true. Um, and, and again, we have to think about if we're saying white supremacy is not a, a, a biological ethnicity, right. but sort of a becoming right. or a being, a way in which we are in the world, a sort of cultural reality, yep. then, you know, then yes, someone can assert themselves over others. I mean, and, 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 but the thing is, this is, this is what I would say. So, yeah, so yeah. it's really that, that, that creature supremacy more so. And so theologically, we can see that, yes, one person is, you know, always going to try to assert themselves over another if they're not working that out before the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we might put the the, the nomenclature white in front of it because of just looking back at this particular history. But, I, you know, I, I, I would so I kind of bristle. But at the same time, I understand what you're saying. And so, um, I, I didn't say anything. I just asked a question, brother. Yeah, man, you, you said it, man. You over here starting fights on the stage, bro. And so, um, <laughs> I, hey, I, I love Philip. And, and so, uh, <laughs> so, so really, so, so, the, so this, this, I'll give, I'll give a personal illustration. So I'm a, uh, associate vice president for Kingdom Diversity Initiatives at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and I teach theology as well. But there was a day when I, when I had to uh, really ask myself, okay, Walter, right now they really need you because there's not many of you here. So do I leverage all the, um, the opportunities and the, the, you know, and the ability to shape the culture at the organization, at the institution to help us get here or to kind of help us get here yet tripping us up along the way because then I devalue myself. You see, how, you see what I'm saying? So at that point, I was making a choice. Do I, you know, uh, use this opportunity that my institution has given me to prop myself up as saying, yeah, you really need Walter Strickland, you know, or do I really leverage it to bring others in whereby I might be just working myself out of a job or there might be one as one who comes in who's more qualified or more well-spoken than I am. And so, and that's, and that's the kind of thing. If I was going to um, have that sort of like, hey, I am self-focused, I'm supreme, I'm trying to live into a culture that wants to prop Walter up, 
then I would have done just enough so that a couple of people who look like the non-traditional Southeasterner would get into the, into the guild, but not enough to where I am. Yeah, there's, there's actually real change going on on campus. Does that make sense? And so if I was to live into uh, a cultural reality that wanted to prop me up, then that would be living into a sort of supremacist reality. But at the same time, I mean, I had to say, I mean, really, I, this was a moment of, of decision for me. We all have to make these decisions. You know, we all have to be people who are trying to live our lives under the authority of Christ, welcoming our brothers and sisters in, even if it might sort of devalue ourselves and our value to the organization because I'm, I'm not as unique anymore. Right. And so this, that, that, that's, that's one of those moments that I, I could even point to in my own life where I had to, to pick if I was going to live as Christ or if I was going to push others away. That's helpful. So help me understand this. I mean, because I'm, I'm, I'm a little confused, Walter and Dr. Ellis. Um, there's no perfect culture, right? That's right. That's right. Right. That's right. But, but some cultures, no perfect, perhaps. No perfect culture on earth. On earth, yeah. right? Some cultures perhaps are, are better than others in certain ways, in different ways, right? Um, what are we saying when we value one particular culture over another. What are the implications of that? There are some cultures that are more self-sabotaging than others. I'll just put it that way. There are some cultures that are that that uh, empower people more than others. We just have to be honest about that. I mean, there are, um, and of course, in today's world, it is politically incorrect to evaluate the strengths or weaknesses of cultures. You know, today's politically correct atmosphere, all cultures are of equal validity. But that is simply a lie. Not all cultures are equally valid. A culture that's based on the word of the true and living God is more, um, shall I say, more authentic than a culture that is based on um, superstition. Does that make sense? A culture that is based on the word of God is stronger than a culture that is based on uh, a false worldview. And uh, now, don't, 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 don't get it twisted now. Uh, because that doesn't mean that Western culture is better than others, but it's just that. It's just that. Because I, I, I have my doubts as to how much Western culture is really based on the word of God. That's, okay. that's what I was about right, to ask. Right. So, you know, that, that's, see, that white lady that wrote that op-ed for Christian Post mm-hmm. said that the whiteness that she was referring to that's being, that's being assaulted is, 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 is a biblical culture, if no. you will. No, there's no culture that's perfectly biblical. You know. um, uh, it, 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 it may have appropriated some things in the scripture, but it doesn't mean that it is scriptural. Um, but, I, you know, okay, Let's, let me put something in here. Slavery, for example. Slavery. Every civilization on the face of this earth for, for all of history has practiced some form of slavery. Okay? Anybody who studies history would know that. Western civilization is the only civilization that I know of that at some point rejected slavery. Okay, now, that's a positive I can say about Western civilization, but that doesn't mean the Western civilization is all that innocent. Does that make sense? Okay, so what we have to do is we have to take, 
when, when you salt, it, it, okay, I got meat and I got vegetables on my plate and, and they, they need salt. And I put the salt on the meat from the salt shaker, but I don't take the meat to try to salt my vegetables. I should take the salt shaker to salt the vegetables. So the problem that has happened in the past is that what has happened is that Western civilization has had some applied biblical truth to it, yes. But then a lot of, in too many cases, people took that biblical truth to other places in that Western, Anglo-Saxon, whatever, cultural package. And when the people rejected the cultural package, the people who brought it thought that they were rejecting Christianity. And so having rejected Christianity, they said, well, then we're justified in exploiting them. Does that make sense? So the thing you have to do, you have to separate the, 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 the biblical truth from the cultural package it comes in. Now, that reminds me, you know, of Acts chapter 15. That's a classic example. You know, when, when Gentiles started coming to believe, uh, a bunch of scribes and Pharisees and, and others who had, who had become Christians went on up to Antioch and said, unless you uh, follow the traditions of Moses and all that, you can't be saved. And they had a, a big brouhaha about that. So they had this big general assembly, you know, remember this in Acts 15? And they boiled it down to just a couple of things. Said, okay, here's the deal. Here are the bare minimums. Don't eat meat with strangled animals, of strangled animals. Don't eat blood. Stay away from sexual immorality. You will do well to do those things. Forget about all those new moons and Sabbaths and all the rest of that. Take that cultural, that cultural package that it came in away. Just take the truth itself. And so we must learn how to do the same thing. Separate the biblical truth that we have in our culture, if we have it, or just the biblical truth, separate it from the cultural package it comes in. And that's, that's what... Uh, Western Christi Christianity, that's been one of the greatest failures of Western Christianity. Yeah, because the, the, the fall out of that is extreme, I mean, it, or it's significant. Uh, those who are not a part of the cultural standard in which Christianity is purported to be you know, given out, all you can do is either assimilate to that and then begin to um, become frustrated with the, the, the culture from which you've come, uh, making you sort of uh, uh, giving you an animosity towards it, thinking of it as childish, uh, even a Christian, even like a good Christian expression, you know, in, in many of our seminaries that are, that are Bible believing seminaries, it's almost like we have to become embarrassed of our own sort of church heritage in order to become more uh, educated. And, and so we, we, we have to push some of those cultural, even ways in which we uh, uh, adore God in order to be, you know, a, a true Christian, a mature Christian. Or you can be somebody that says, you know, I'm going to double down and I'm not going to lose who I am, but then you're seen as rebellious. Not, not, not in the form of which godliness is most likely to come. And so, so then you're, you're, it's really a difficult situation that you're left with. But, you know, this, this, is, this is the hopeful piece. I think it is possible for people to disciple others who are from different cultural backgrounds. It is possible to teach them as well. And so, so this is a challenge, yes, but there's hope for sure. But we have to uh, agree to address this issue. I mean, because what, so if we have Jesus here and then I'm here and then somebody who is like, you know, let's say uh, there's a professor of mine who when I was in seminary, he who took me under his wing. He was, he was, he's Anglo, he's white. And so what, this was very, very uh, intentional by him. He says, you know, I'm here, you're here. I'm not trying to make you like me to get to Jesus. I'm going to encourage you from here to get to Jesus, and we're going to get closer together as we walk to Jesus. And so 
So what, one, of, one of the lies that our culture tells us, in, and it comes in, in, many, in many ways, is that somebody from a different culture, so if we respect each other's home culture, that we then therefore don't have any way to admonish each other, to help sharpen each other, to be more faithful to Christ. And that's crazy. Because we are here to help each other become, you know, more like Jesus. And so I, I use this, this illustration of the coffee bean. So a coffee bean looks like a coffee bean no matter where you see it in the world. But when you plant the coffee bean plant or whatever it is, vine, is a, it's a plant, right? Vine, okay. When, when you plant it, it takes up the flavor of the soil that it's planted in. And so you know if you're drinking, you know, something that's from Hawaii Brazil, you know, uh, and wherever else it is from the world, but it's unmistakably coffee. Yeah. And so we have to allow each other to understand, you know, while the faith only ever manifests in culture, it's never captive to it Amen. because there's no one culture that has a corner on faithfulness to Jesus. That's right. That's right. And so Amen. what we have to do is continue. Thanks. <laughs> we, have to, we have to continue to, to understand that I can be, be helped by my white brother and I can help my white brother to grow in faithfulness to Christ without having to become more aligned to any, each, uh, each other's cultures in that way. And so I think that's one of the things that we have to be able to understand. And I think this, what this, um, this author of this piece did not understand because I think she was assuming that her cultural expression of the faith was the faith itself. That's good. I want, and and on, that's on, idolatry, on. by the way. That's yeah, idolatry. That's idolatry. Now, I, I like where this is going because it set my next question up really well. How much credit can... Because most of us in here are probably Calvinistic, Reformed. There's probably a range, right? You know, you got those people who, yeah, I'm a four-point Calvinist, whatever that is. And, you know, then you got the confessional people all, all the way on the other end. Sorry. I'm Ralding, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the thing. Right, but here's the thing, though. Herman Bobbing, one of my favorite theologians, came to America the first time. And when he went back, he would tell the students, don't go to America or else you'll become a Methodist. That was his assessment. He came back the second time, and he said that the greatest problem in America was the problem of racism and the, and the animosity that existed between blacks and whites. Now, I subscribe to the, uh, subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Westminster... Is, is not in America. Uh, it's a confession that was exported, right, to America. Um, and, and we have a version that is adopted from the original version, kind of like the 1689 came from the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm just, okay, yeah. I just, you should compare the documents. I mean, the plagiarism is for real. I love my, my Baptist brothers, though. I love, I, my Baptist brothers and sisters don't, I love you, right? But it's interesting to me that that was his observation because oftentimes it seems that we assume that the theology that we have was birthed here in America. In what ways do you think it's possible? Also, let me, let me make sure I point this out. Herman Bovink, because I want to make sure we get to the hope part. Herman Bovink also said that unless the American church underwent 
a profound transformation, he didn't think that it was equipped to deal with the problem of racism because it was so complex. So he basically said, a lot needs to change in the American church because their Christianity does not have the answer. This was the early 1900s when he said this. This is Herman Bovink, a white Dutch theologian, and this was his assessment of America. Thoughts, implications, gentlemen? Yeah, um, that's always the problem, isn't it? You know, uh, some people will say, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, again, what happens is that the Bible tells us in the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, right? And, you know, there's two ways you disciple. You can disciple an individual hoping that they will also impact the culture, or you can disciple the culture hoping that it will impact the individual. And the Bible tells us to do both. We have not done very well on that second one, okay? Uh, And so, uh, but in order to disciple a culture, the Bible is very clear. It says, engage the culture at its points and and affirm it at when it agrees with Scripture and critique it when it disagrees with Scripture, okay? You engage the culture, but you do not fall into cultural captivity. That's the problem that we... We, we, we engage the culture, we fall into cultural captivity. And when you're in the cultural captivity, then you participate not only in the right things that the culture does, but you also participate in the cultural sin. And the cultural sin of America was racism. Okay, we have to recognize that. Well, that was one of the cultural sins. And so the church fell into cultural captivity and therefore participated in the cultural sin. And you know what? If you participate in cultural, cultural sin long enough, you will forget that it's sin. Uh, I think of uh, the Israelites, the, the, the nobility, the, the, the best and the brightest, the high achievers that were brought over to Babylon in that first deportation. It included Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And, of course, you can see the, the, the difference between Daniel and his friends and the rest of the nobles. The rest of the nobles went along with the, the meal ticket at Ubab, okay? And, but Daniel and his friends did not. But you see that there. But two chapters later, you see all those other nobles have, had succumbed to cultural sin, and they were bowing down to that big image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, but Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did not. And they were willing to pay the consequences for that. They did a nonviolent demonstration. Okay, um, <laughs> that's kind of interesting. But um, uh, but the, the 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 problem with uh, all of us again, the church, the, the people of God, we have a tendency to fall into cultural captivity, and that's what happened to the American church, and that's what Bobbing saw. But now, if let's say the Dutch had imported African slaves and all the rest of that, then I think Holland would have had a similar problem to America. The same way. So uh, another example I can use is tulip. You know, everybody knows about tulip, okay, right? Tulip. And I'm going to give you my opinion. Oh, by the way, I subscribe to the Westminster Confession and all the rest of that, all right? But I think tulip is one of the worst cases of theological communication that's ever come down the pike from an American point of view. Because tulip uh, was originally a Dutch acrostic, Right? They try to translate the acrostic over, and it just distorts things. Like the one that used to give me a whole lot of trouble was limited atonement. 
What the heck does that mean? Does that mean that God is stingy? You know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean that. I mean, if you get behind the, the doctrines behind all that, then you begin to realize it's okay. But, but at first thought, you know, it, it, looks, it looks terrible. And it's, it, is, it comes across very, very bad to most people that I talk to, you know. But, so, yes, I mean, the fact is that, that uh, the, you know, the, when the Bible says engage the culture but don't fall captive to the culture, it's, it's saying basically it uses the words be in the world but not of it. That's it. And, uh, and so what we have to do is constantly critique our Christianity with the Word of God to make sure that we do not fall into cultural captivity. And it's a temptation to fall into cultural captivity because we all like to seek what I call the sweet spot in the society. And the sweet spot is a place of least difficulty. Um, if I was a white Christian and I, dis- and I refused to participate in racism, in the South, you know what I'd be called, uh, an inward lover, right? You, you got me? And, uh, of course, I don't want that. I, 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 you know, so I'll kind of go along with it to stay in the sweet spot. But the heck with the sweet spot. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah didn't care about the sweet spot. Uh, and so I think what we need today are, are saints who are willing to say, I will stand with the word of God no matter what it means for me. And if we start doing that, I think we'll see the church really being the church. So there you go. Oh, thank you for that, Doc. Dr. Ellis. So let's wrap this up. Uh, we got about five more minutes. What does the promised land look like for not just African Americans, but for the entire church from, multiple, from all nations, all tongues? What does that look like? And then how do we get there from here? Because there's a lot of division. There's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of angst. Uh, I think one of the reasons why uh, many are streaming in and wanting to listen into this conversation is because this is kind of the topic of the day. And there are those who are ready and willing to peddle their version of the gospel um, in order to make money off of that angst um, on both sides. Because, by the way, I I just want to make this clear. I think that there is a version of white supremacy that exists on the progressive side just as much as the conservative side. Uh, Think about uh, the later years of of Dr. Martin Luther King uh, when he was going for the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, He was abandoned on all sides. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the pre- everybody hated Dr. King for what he was attempting to pursue. And I, and I, found, that was, I found that interesting. So, so as we move forward, Walter, I'm going to start with you, and I want to end with Dr. Ellis. What does the promised land look like, and, and how do we actually get here, get there as a body, as one body, as a united body of Christ? And I, I think the beginning of that answer is really easy. It's the perfections of God marking all of our existence and being together. Say that again. It's, it's the perfections of God marking our existence and our being together. I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God. So all those things marking uh, this, this kingdom reality, really. I mean, and so we're, we're aiming towards that. Like that that's, that's the thing that is going to actually anchor us. And so... If we don't understand this eschatological picture, this kingdom reality, 
then we'll have no idea where we're even setting our sights for the future. And so people will have this, you know, dictum that, you know, those who are most heavenly minded are no earthly good. Actually, if you're not heavenly minded, then you could be no good on this earth because you have no idea where we're going. You don't know how to, you, you don't know how, okay, so change needs to happen. Well, to what end? Towards the kingdom. And so, uh, and the question is, this is the hard one, how do we get there? Well, um, I do think that, uh, and I'm not, I'm going to let Dr. Ellis answer the question, that question, but I'm going to try to set you up a little bit, Doc. Thanks. Okay, so, um, uh, so this, this is the alley you, Gary Payton, Sean Kent, okay. old school. Uh, <laughs> got about one minute. Okay, well, okay. <laughs> come on, wrap it up, guys. Okay, here you go. So, um, Needless to say, I, I'll just, yeah, I'll be brief, I lost my chair to that. So, uh, one thing I think we've lost is that if we're looking at secular sort of theoretical approaches to understanding how to move towards change, what they don't have is a doctrine of the kingdom, and all that they can imagine is the reverse of what happened to them. Right. And so, if you have a, you know, a, 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 a theory that doesn't have a, 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 a kingdom anchor on it, that's orienting it, that allows people to be together, characterized by love, as demonstrated you know, to us by Christ, then all you're going to do is reimagine what happened, but then you're going to flip who's on the top of, of, the, of the equation, uh, it, you know, and then those who are on the top are going to be on the bottom. And then that, that's your vision of paradise, because you don't have a way of getting out of what has been to get to something else we have to have a kingdom vision okay all right Great. dr ellis one minute okay what is the promised land revelations revelations uh seven nine there it is look it up you'll you'll you know okay google it in the bible <laughs> okay uh i i think i think i think the thing and i'm, I'm gonna pick up on what uh, walt said is that uh yeah um what these people out here are clamoring for all these activists and everything, they're really clamoring for cosmic justice, okay? But the problem is when cosmic justice comes, and it will come, it's gonna be, if you're going to see the fruit of cosmic justice, you have to be perfect or else you are going to be struck down by cosmic justice. So the only people who are going to benefit from cosmic justice are the people for whom the cosmic justice has been totally satisfied, and we know who satisfied that for us, right? You got it? And the second thing, too, is that I, I think um, here's one of my favorite verses. Uh, it's, it's, it's what I use as the Great Commission, in a way. It's in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire? That the, nations, uh, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And so the, the promised land is to realize that, that our ultimate fulfillment is not in the kingdoms of this world or the world system, but it is in the kingdom of God. And we're not talking about pie in the sky by and by. We're talking about cosmic justice. And finally, I'll say this. Today's activists, all the social justice warriors and, every, and everybody, the only way that they're going to be satisfied with those they take aim at is for those people to be perfect. Does that make sense? But if we ever got somebody perfect, they'll figure out a way to do them in anyway.
we did have somebody who lived a perfect life, and you know what we did with him. So, uh, so human nature is what it is. It's fallen, uh, and, we, and there's many ways we can, we can illustrate that, but the only hope is in the kingdom of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ, who, 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 who is universal and not culture-bound, but at the same time fulfills this, the longing of all cultures. The, the, the desire of the nation shall come in, said uh, Haggai 2.7. And so that's, that's the fulfillment right there. Amen. If you enjoyed the session, give these gentlemen a hand. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. Check out more gospel-centered resources at thegospelcoalition.org.